Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's program and I am in Manchester at the Christian Resources Exhibition with a dear friend, I was going to say an old friend, but a dear friend who I've known for nearly half a century called Cindy Kent. Cindy was a very famous singer, she's been a broadcaster and also a clergywoman and she's now sort of semi-retired but she's still very much involved in media so Cindy, thank you for being on the program. It's a pleasure, Dan, and it's great to see you again. Now, you probably gather that our accents are reasonably similar to Ozzy Osbourne's. <laughs> um, Cindy's from a place called West Bromwich, I understand. I was born in West Bromwich, yes, and lived uh, the first 16 years of my life in a place called Oldbury. Uh, which is near Dudley. <laughs> uh, I don't think I really ever really had that accent, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but but when I moved down to London when I was sixteen, people immediately knew I was from that part of the world. You know, we don't have um, you know like when when Ozzy Osbourne used to be on TV. I don't think many people understood him. No, they they no. used to think he was funny, <laughs> but hopefully you can understand this. But Cindy, what is so great about your story is you you've had several careers. And um, the first career was with the settlers. You were at a teacher's training college, I understand, in Birmingham, and that's where it all started. Well, the boys were at a teacher's training college. I was a temp. I didn't really know what to do with my life when I left school, so I thought I'd become a temp, and uh, that meant I didn't have to stay too long in one place. And uh, I went to a folk club one night in Birmingham, a very famous one called the Jugger Punch. And um, these two guys got up and sang. They were from Salt Lee Training College. They'd just met each other a few months before uh, when they started. And they did a few songs. And they both came over and chatted me up at the end of the evening. And uh, we all went across to a coffee bar like you did in those days. And they got the guitars out and started singing. And I just joined in. And they said, oh, yeah, you've got a reasonable voice, haven't you? Or <laughs> something like that. And we started singing. And then I sort of went to a nightclub with them. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't a nightclub. It was a working men's club, a Salt Lee Working Men's Club. And um, we'd been messing around with a few songs. And so they did their little set, which I think was all of four songs. And the audience loved it and shouted for more. And so one of the guys said, come and join us and sing that song with us. So I took my cardigan off and got up on the stage and they couldn't get rid of me after that. <laughs> no. Did they have the name, the Settlers, or no, did you come up with that? No, they were called Mike and John, which was really good, wasn't it? Because they were called <laughs> Mike and John, funnily enough. And so uh, Mike's uncle was the entertainment officer for the Isle of Man. Mm. And they, uh, he got in touch with Mike and said there was a big talent competition happening later that year. And uh, would we like to enter it? But you had to have four people minimum. So we looked around and we found a guy uh, called Mansell Davis, a lovely Welsh guy, who was at the Birmingham Teachers Training College, and uh, he came along and was our bass player. And we, we called ourselves the Birmingham Folk Four. It was a bit like, you know, we were from Birmingham Folk Group. There were four of us. It was, uh, and so we entered the competition, and we were very fortunate we won. And we won a, a money, and we won a television audition and a radio audition and a, a recording contract. 
And we entered the competition the next year. Uh, by then, uh, we'd gone all sorts of things. And we, somebody brought in this American lady to manage us. And uh, we were trying to think of a name. And we went through everything. We were sitting at a table, so we think, you know, the salt and pepper pots, the, <laughs> you know, you name it. We came up with it. And she said, what about the settlers? And we said, oh, that's so funny, you know, brings express relief. And she kind of <laughs> looked at us and said, what are you talking about? Because in America, they don't have it. They have bismuth or something. And, so, and then she said, well, that could work to our advantage. We'll put two T's in it, obviously, like the early settlers, but you've got the thing. So the amount of times we turned up at gigs where people said, oh, you're going to bring us express relief. So it worked in our favour, really, and that's how the name The Settlers came about. And so that's how we started. And we were very fortunate because we got all our kind of things over in one go, you know, the recording contract, the television, the radio, whereas some people, you can go for months trying to get those kind of things. And our very first television show was um, in... Uh, for, for border television and uh, we were singing Blowing in the Wind live and we came off the, um, the TV and we got in the car and we, got, we stopped for petrol at the nearest garage and the guy said oh I've just seen you on telly and we thought was his fame <laughs> isn't it a shame about Kennedy and we went what what are you talking about and in the time between us driving the day Kennedy had been shot so I know everybody knows where they were that day but that was my very first television show wow. it's quite amazing you also used to be on a very controversial show called Top of the Pops. Um, that was pretty wild stuff, wasn't it? Well, it was, looking back, it was quite tame, I suppose, really. But, I mean, when you think about the Savile thing and all that in those days. But it was kind of part of part of what was going on. I mean, the amount of time somebody slapped me on the bottom or pinched my bottom or touched my boobs or whatever, and you kind of stood there and let it happen. I mean, I wouldn't now. I'd wallop them. But it was, it was, that was part of it at the time. There was a lot of nasty stuff going on as well, as well as the sort of more gentle stuff, if I can put it that way. But times have changed so much from those days. Jimmy Savile, you just briefly mentioned. Um, tell us his his story, because most Americans wouldn't know about him. Sorry, yes, of course, that's right. Uh, well, he was a DJ, a uh, very eccentric-looking DJ with wild blonde hair and lots of uh, gimmicky things and whatever. He was actually a very good broadcaster, to be honest, um, and he did a lot of good. One has to say that up front. He did, uh, uh, there was a hospital in Leeds uh, that he was associated with, and he raised millions of pounds for them. And if you were ever doing a gig in a nightclub anywhere near that hospital, the first thing you saw when you got in your dressing room was, you will be at the hospital at 2.30 on Sunday afternoon to sing for the kids and, and everybody went, you know, you did, everybody that, that did it. But underneath that all, what we didn't know at the time was that he was actually sexually abusing young girls in the hospitals in the different places he was going to taking them back to his camper van at night either willingly or unwillingly, who knows um, and so there was that dark side to it, which mm. as I say most of us thought, oh he's, he's been a bit of a lad and then you find out later on the things he was doing, which were really horrendous. And, of course, the BBC didn't cover it up. I don't think they believed it, if, if you know what I mean. They, they couldn't believe that this man, who'd, like a saint, um, and he, he had a knighthood, which he, they stripped him of once he passed, you know, passed away and they found out what was going on. But uh, it, was a, it was an interesting time to live through. You also recorded uh, a song about Martin Luther King. Mm by uh, Dave Cousins of the Straubs. Tell, tell yeah. us about that. Uh, yes, it was called um, I Have a Dream, funnily enough, because that was part of his famous speech. And it was a great song, and we, we used to do it on stage. And um, I remember thinking, there must be a good way to introduce this that sort of sets the scene. So a very good friend of mine, David Winter, who went on to become the head of religious broadcasting for the BBC, but was my kind of mentor at the time, he came up with a quote from Ecclesiastes about to everything there is a season and a time. And he wove that into the idea of Martin Luther King's speech. And 
And so I used to preface the song on stage by saying, you know, there'll be a time when black and white will sit together and my children. And we wove that in with the Bible quotes. And it was a great song to sing. And well done, Dave, for writing it. Yeah, as I mentioned today when we were talking on your sofa here at the CRE, my first ever interview was Caressa Scott King, and that was a pretty amazing interview because it was a St. Paul's Cathedral. She was the first woman ever allowed into the pulpit to speak, and she was speaking at uh, her husband's memorial service. So I had a tremendous... uh, I also interviewed uh, Mahalia Jackson, and she told me the story of his I Had a Dream speech. He wasn't going to give that speech, Cindy, when he had the... um, the big thing in Washington and just as he was about to stand up he'd given that speech before and Mahalia Jackson shouted across do the dream speech and he changed the speech there and then and did that iconic speech I mean it's pretty amazing amazing, isn't it now you also worked with Cliff Richard now Sir Cliff Richard um, what was it like to work with Cliff well, it was great. I mean, first of all, we became friends, which I think was, was the nicest part about it. I started going to the same church as him, and uh, he and a group of people from the church came to our a concert. We used to do an annual concert at the Royal Festival Hall, and he, they all came along and sat in the audience, and that was a kind of weird feeling, that this guy who I'd been listening to from records from years ago was sitting in the audience listening to me. It was like, <laughs> oh, this is a bit strange. And at the time, he'd been asked to do a tour of the, the continent for a, a setup called Euro Evangelism and he didn't want to do it on his own uh, so he asked us if we'd go with him and so we kind of backed him but we also did our own thing as well, in fact on a couple of songs I stood at the front and he joined the lads at the back backing me which was quite amazing and we did lots of places on the, on the continent we did the Manchester Free Trade Hall as well, we did the Royal Albert Hall for three nights um, and that was absolutely fabulous and a great introduction to, to what the show it was the year he did congratulations in the Eurovision Song Contest so oh, wherever right. we went on the continent they were playing congratulations <laughs> and I'm glad to say he's still a friend to this day you just posted on Facebook a, pic, a cardboard cutout of him at the airport when you arrived in <laughs> Portugal did you, did, you buy, did you place it there or what? As you get off the plane in Faro at the airport and you walk out past the duty free, there's this life size cutout of Cliff holding a bottle of his famous wine, which comes from Portugal. And so I couldn't resist standing in front of it and saying, Look who's come to meet me at the airport. Load of my friends thought it was for real, yeah. but others were very witty, saying, Oh, it's a shame he doesn't talk anymore, and all those jokes about his songs and everything. But uh, no, it's a lovely wine, by the way. I must admit, I tasted it there and it was very good. So tell us about Cliff then, for people who don't know what he's just been through. He's just gone through the most horrendous time of his life where uh, he was accused of sexually abusing uh, a young person in Sheffield many years ago, something he totally denied. He was never charged. Uh, The BBC went into his flat, his house, his apartment in uh, Surrey, and filmed going through drawers and everything, and uh, it was just awful. And we were talking earlier on about Jimmy Savile. I think the way they treated Cliff was because they didn't go in heavy with Jimmy Savile and regretted it when it was found out. I think they thought, right, here's a a suspicion of something happening. Let's not be caught out this time. And they went in with all guns blazing. 
but it went to trial and it came to nothing and he was awarded a massive amount of damages and rightly so. I went to court one day actually just to be with him, to support him and you know he found that very helpful and yeah he's, he's been a good friend over the years but that was a terrible thing to go through. And what made it worse was it was the allegation was supposed to be at a Billy Graham rally in Sheffield of That's all right. places. That's right yeah well now a friend of mine who's here with me at the CRE Ian Robertson, he was a kind of bagman for him that weekend and he said I, I don't know when it happened because I was with him apart from about four hours when he was in you know, in his room at sleep, you know, so loads of people defended him and yes. nobody could believe it of him. And the press just went to town, didn't they, really, as, as they do? Uh, yeah, they put you on a throne, don't they? They elevate you and then they love to knock you off. You journalists. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cindy, you then changed career once again. You, you went from been an attempt to a singer <laughs> to radio. How did that come about? Well, when the group finished in 73, uh, we just had a, a, a hit with a song called The Lightning Tree, the theme tune to a, a television series called Folly Foot, and so um, we decided to leave and, and just leave it all alone. But I always fancy going into radio because it's a great medium. Um, you're listening to me now through your, I don't know, headphones or whatever, and you don't know what I look like. But I have to tell you, I am a stunning size eight blonde. Uh, with the, no, I'm not actually, but I could be, couldn't I? From radio, you don't know. That's why I love it. It's better than telly. The pictures are better, aren't they, on radio? Let's be honest, the pictures are better. And so I went to see a guy called David Winter, who'd been a very good friend of mine, who was then working in the religious department at the BBC, and just said, "Look, I fancy getting into radio. What do you, th what do you suggest?" He was the producer of a program called Sunday, which went out, funnily enough, on a Sunday in the morning. It was a kind of news thing, and he said, "How about reviewing new gospel albums? Because you know about the music side. It'd be a good." bridge to get between the two so there I am writing scripts for Radio 4 which for your American listeners is like was the top serious radio station and I learnt my craft the hard way but it was a great way of learning things and then I did a series with radio, for Radio 2 which Cliff co-hosted a couple of and then um, I, did a, I did one programme, one series on Radio 1 I've never worked for Radio 3 so I've missed that out <laughs> then I moved into commercial radio at the birth of commercial radio I moved from various stations ending up uh, with Premier, the Christian radio station, and I was the first presenter they signed up when they came on air. I mean, that was new to the UK. You guys in America have had Christian radio stations coming out your ears. We had, you know, that first one, and it was wonderful to be part of it. Now, Princess Di, you were very involved in yeah. broadcasting the news, I understand. Well, yes, I was. Uh, I woke up very early on that Sunday morning, and to the news that she had died. And I knew that uh, we hadn't got anything prepared, obviously. Nobody had. You think she was going to die. You don't have a little tape stored away like you do for everybody else once they get older, but certainly not for her. And I remember just getting in the car and driving into London, listening to the news, got in, and um, there were a couple of people there that were doing normal uh, Sunday morning show. And I just said, right, you carry on doing what you're doing. I rang everybody I knew. Uh, that was uh, you know, worthy of talking to and broke the news in many cases. Oh, can I have a comment on, on Princess Diana? And they would comment, why? What's happened? You know, oh, they hadn't heard the news. And it was an amazing thing. And I remember being there at the radio station for about eight hours, uh, it, talking to people, interviewing people, going on air, playing sombre music, you know, all the bit. And then I got in my car to drive back and I was listening to the news and I suddenly started crying. It, it, it suddenly sank in. I'd been kind of on adrenaline for eight hours, do you know what I mean? Just that it was, it was the news story. I can imagine how some news people get so immersed in a story. It kind of hit me on the way back. I suddenly thought, Princess Diana's... You know what it was like? And it, the tears, it was amazing. 
but it was a, an incredible story to break. I also got the Queen Mother's death. Um, <laughs> I seem to get. Low. In fact, they get worried when I walk into premier. Oh, Cindy's here. Who's you know? Who's who's next on the list? And I got 9/11 as well. That was the big one, of course. Now tell us about that. Oh well, I was doing the drive program then. That was three till six, and so in the UK, it happened a couple of hours before I went on air, and we saw those pictures on our screens. And the boss of Premier came in and said, right, we just abandoned normal programming. You just go on, you play tracks that are kind of, you know, not exactly dirgy and sombre, but, you know, there were lots of tracks that we could play. And for the next three hours, four hours, I think, I, I talked to people all over the world. We had a little team sitting in there, and I'd suddenly get a message on the screen. Online one is, uh, you know, the, the director of Calvary Chapel or whatever, or somebody from the Billy Graham, or, you know, key people. And I just interviewed them. And sometimes I kind of felt a, a need to say, will you pray for us at the end? Which is where a radio station like Premier is brilliant over and above you know, some of the other stations because you can just say, let's have a prayer. And people did. And, and the next day I got a, a, an email from a, a lady in America who was listening to us, which is odd, a British radio station about an American event, thanking me because she said, I was so upset and angry with God for letting this happen. I couldn't pray. And so it was lovely to just say amen at the end of the prayers that you got people to say. And mm. I, I, I never kept the email, I should have done, but I, I treasure that moment, which is where radio, not me, where radio gets right into somebody's ears and hearts and homes and can be so powerful. What was so amazing, Cindy, about 9-11 was I was in Jordan, of all places, with a group of 28 Christian leaders, including Billy Graham's press officer, and we got the news about the first plane hitting, and then we were in a place called Gadara, where the Gadarene swine went over the hill, and got the news about the second plane, and we were trapped in, uh, in Jordan, in a Muslim country, no flights were coming in and out of the States, and we were stuck there for a whole week, not knowing what was going to happen. But we finally arrived safely back in New York. We were on the first, the Royal Jordanian was the first Arab airline allowed back into the States. But for 9-11, that was like the Kennedy thing. You know, yeah. everybody can remember yeah, what yeah, happened, exactly. you yeah, know. Yeah, when, when you would go into premiere and do your uh, your radio programs was there any humorous things that ever happened to you from listeners or anything not so much humorous but there was one story that i thought again proved the power of radio um i was doing the late night show and people phoned in i used to take a subject every night you know people would ring in and you hear some great stories and this was i was talking about um uh, sort of reconciliation you know conflict recon- resolution all that sort of stuff not in global terms but in families you know and that sort of thing and this woman uh, rang up and said uh, she'd just had an amazing blazing row with her husband and he'd gone upstairs and she was downstairs and they were she was furious and uh, we talked about it. She didn't tell us what the error was about, but how she felt. And as a Christian, she thought it was wrong to have these feelings, but she, was, she got so angry and this, that, and another. And I just sort of said, um, well, if you... Uh, it's calling Fred. I don't know what his name was. Fred, if you're listening, you know, be the bigger part, you know. If, <laughs> even if it wasn't your fault, go and say... Yeah. And he rang about half an hour later, and she'd started to walk upstairs, and he'd started to walk downstairs, and they'd met in the middle of the stairs because they both listened to the same programme. And I just thought, wow, that is, that's amazing, isn't it? That they would only have to ring up and tell me that they'd made up and it was, uh, Premier had, you know, helped and it was great, yeah. No, I don't think anything particularly funny has ever happened to me, really. <laughs> well, now you then go on to 
run a church in, uh, is it North London? Yeah, that's right, yeah, North London. What, what was that like for you? I mean, you, you've been a professional singer, then you've been a professional broadcaster, now you're a professional clergywoman. Uh, what was that like? Was, was it a bit of a shock? Well, yeah, I, got, I kind of got a calling at one point uh, to, to go into the church. In, in those days, in, in the Church of England, because I'm an Anglican, it was to be a deaconess. That was, that was all you could do. And uh, it's funny, we're having this conversation now, which is the day after the, the anniversary of the 25 years of women priests in the UK, which is quite amazing. And so I, I, I talked to my uh, priest about it, and he sent me off to the bishop for a, a, an interview. And um, in the area of London I was living, it was very anti the idea of, of women generally doing anything. But anyway, they sent me off for this selection conference you have to go through, which is three days where they analyse everything about you, apart from your inside leg measurement. That's about the only thing they don't ask. And you get to do all sorts of things. And um, I came back, and then the bishop calls you in and reads out the results. And, and the way he said, oh, you know, communication skills were good, this, that was good, da, 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 da. And at the bottom they just said, but we don't feel she's got a vacation. And that was like a blow, because, I mean, how can you argue against that? You can't say, well, I think I have. Well, mm. like, you know, who knows? Anyway, um, that took me a long time to get over, if I'm honest, because I, I, I felt, well, what was God doing? You know, he called me that far. And looking back, of course, I probably wouldn't have done all sorts of things. I wouldn't have got involved with Premier Radio, probably. And, and you know, mm. in his wisdom, he knows what he's doing. And then a few years later, about four years later, um, I was at a little communion service in a retreat house and we were just we were kneeling down and, and the priest was doing the you know this is my body broken for you and I suddenly started crying just tears rolling down I thought that's what I want to do I think mm. that's what I'm being called so I went through all the steps again and they sent me off and this time I got accepted but uh, still in this area where anti-women so the only church that would take me on as a curate who, who had a priest who wasn't anti-women uh, then after my first year I don't think it was personal but he decided to retire and so because I wasn't being paid I'm by then over <laughs> 60 so you, you can't be paid for the job um, uh, against all the odds the bishop asked me to take it on because the congregation had asked him if I could so um, it, that was absolutely amazing to do so for six years I, I was at this church in North London and we we doubled the electoral roll, and we got men and children involved. And we got a local school, and it, uh, we built up a team, and it was it was absolutely great, and I absolutely loved it every minute. Did, didn't you sort of come up with some rather unusual ideas for the congregation? <laughs> well, there was one, yes. Um, it, it happened to be the Sunday reading was about uh, finances, and we were a bit low on finances in the church. So when the collection plate went round on this particular Sunday. Uh, it had loads of £10 notes on it and I said take one or two if you want we'll keep a note and I want you to double it at least uh, and we did and we made I think it was about 5000 or something like that the kids in the school washed cars and made sweet bangles and things and the adults did and, and they took on jobs for other people you know I'll walk your dog for a week I mean it was all it was absolutely brilliant to see what people did and, and it was a great way of raising money but it was so simple really but it was lovely to see this collection plate going around mm. quite the reverse of normal you know <laughs> so like watching a film in reverse of you know an empty one going around and people so yeah it was things like that and we got the, the children involved a lot. Um, now you got a special award from Buckingham Palace. Was that for your singing, or what was it for? It was for services to religious broadcasting. Um, oh. Somebody put my name forward to to get an award, and uh, I've, who, who knows? I, I don't know how it was swayed, but uh, this person got lots of people that you and I would both know uh, to, to write a letter of commendation saying. 
how wonderful I was. <laughs> if I'm half as good as people said I was, I mean, well, you know. Anyway, uh, the letter came, you know, and you're sworn to secrecy to say Her Majesty has decided to award you an MBE. And uh, you think, oh, I can't believe it. You can't tell anybody. So it was, like, really awful. But uh, I, I did find out who'd done it. And it, it, it's got a, a sad twist to the tale because the lady who uh, was a lifelong friend and who did get all the letters together and everything suddenly got cancer of the throat mm. and uh, she could only whisper mm. and so the night I told her because we knew she was terminal and she could have died be- long before it was announced and I broke the rules and I said well, as long as you don't tell anybody so I did tell her that and then the night before it was announced we were at my son's house in North London for, for a meal and this friend was there and my son didn't think anything strange about her being there you know and uh, got to the deadline which was half past ten at night when we could reveal it and uh, I tapped my wine glass and said, I think Bib's got something she wants to say. And she said, your mum's got an MBE. <laughs> and it was like, wow. It was, it was incredible. But she sadly died before she could come to the palace with me to get it. But uh, And that's a, a member of the British Empire, is it? Absolutely, yes. I'm and wearing a small version of it on my coat at the moment, which oh, is a ty- looks like it could be a cross, actually, but it's a very small uh, silver cross-type thing. And it's an, an amazing award. And you go to the palace and yeah. you are treated like royalty for the day. It was Prince William who gave it me. And, I mean, that's a lovely thought, that a future <laughs> king. And they make you feel special from the minute you arrive. They... they treat you as I say they just treat you so well and they must do hundreds of these things but you are made to feel queen for a day kind of thing what's the biggest lesson Cindy you'd say you you've learned from God uh, you know after many many years of ministry his grace is sufficient that's the first one but I think the second one is and I try and weave this into almost every sermon that there's nothing I can do today to make God love me more Mm. and there's nothing I can do today to make God love me less and if only the church as a whole shouted that message out to people mm. who need to hear it, you know, we, we, we couldn't go far wrong with that. I think people think they've got to jump through hoops and you've got to be good and you've got to be this and you've got to, you haven't. Yeah, he's done it all. You've just got to accept it. And I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned. Cindy Ken, thank you so much. Dan, it's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station.